Heavenly Father, Lord, as we're introduced to Daniel's final vision, Lord, we know that this is a book about the past and the future. That, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose. That all of human history is headed in a direction, and the direction is consummation. Lord, your plans and your purposes will come to pass. Lord, you will redeem those that you have set aside to redeem. Lord, you will forgive those that you've set aside to forgive. Lord, you will cleanse those you've set aside to cleanse. Lord, you will bring hope to each and every person who comes to you in humility and brokenness with their heart open and their hands open who are willing to receive Christ. And so, Heavenly Father, as we peek once again into Daniel's personal prayer closet, Lord, as we join him as he does his devotions, Lord, we pray that you would speak to our heart, that you would tell us a little bit about our future. In Jesus' name, amen. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphos. His body was like burl or topaz, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me didn't see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone. When I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet, I heard the sound of his words. And while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the crown and became speechless. And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh, man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. 
So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, You know I've come to you, and now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. Hold on a second here. Little frog. Nothing French. Thomas Akempis. He wrote, The devil does not sleep, nor is the flesh yet dead. Therefore, you must never cease your preparations for battle, because on the right and on the left are enemies who never rest. We have enemies. The world, the flesh, the devil. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that your enemies are God's enemies and your friends are God's friends. We're introduced finally at the end of this book to Daniel's final vision. And chapter 10 is the prelude or the introduction to chapters 11 and 12 in the final vision. Two major themes will emerge from this chapter. Two conflicts. There's two wars. One is on the inside. And one is on the outside. One is being waged inside of Daniel's heart. And one is taking place in what Donald Gray Barnhouse used to refer to as the invisible war. There is, even though we're not able to see it, a vast supernatural conflict that's being waged all around us. And in verse 1, we begin in the secret, the secret in the heart, or the secret war in the heart. Look what it says. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. The chapter opens, and the message is revealed. It's the third year of King Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, we know again from history exactly the year. It's 335 to 334 B.C. This means two years have gone by since Cyrus has issued the edict or the command to go and rebuild Jerusalem. So in a rare moment, Daniel makes reference to his Babylonian name. You'll note throughout the chapter he never refers to himself. He always refers to himself as Daniel, but for purposes of instruction, he'll sometimes use the name Belteshazzar. But the reason why this becomes important for you and for I, this is the name of his slavery. This is the name of his captive name. This is his slave name, if you will. And clearly, Daniel is troubled. He is disturbed. He is deeply and profoundly troubled. There is an internal war waging inside of him. His heart is broken and torn. And what is the source of the deep burden of his heart? Well, I'm going to tell you what I believe that what it is. There is a sense of apathy and indifference on the part of the children of the captivity because he's issued the decree that they can go. And we know from Ezra and from Nehemiah that 50,000 people leave. But do you know what that means? Hundreds of thousands of people remain. Now, the reason why this becomes important is that most have elected to remain in Babylon. And remember, they don't belong in Babylon. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Daniel. Remember, part of the point of the promise is the captivity is only for a season and you will be released because God has a plan and a purpose for you. And the reason why this becomes important for you and for I is because those of us who... Before we became Christians, we were children of captivity. 
We were slaves to sin. And some Christians remain slaves to sin, bound in their addiction. Preoccupied with the mental, the physical, and the emotional chains that keep them from the place of promise and the place of productivity, the the plan that God has. Daniel is old. And when I mean old, I mean old. As a matter of fact, he's way past his mid-80s. Daniel is closer to 90 than he is to 85. He is coming towards the end of his life. And by this time, most of Daniel's friends that he grew up with, that he knew from his youth, were long dead. The salt of Babylon has headed back to Jerusalem and Judea. The progress is slow. Daniel remains in captivity. It could be because of his age. It could be because of his ill health. For whatever reason, he remains there. Now, the book of Nehemiah, and most particularly the book of Ezra, gives us the details of the issues that were facing the Jews as they made their way back to the land. There was opposition and harassment from renegade Jews. There was discouragement from the leaders. There was indifference and apathy from the rank and file. They had come to a place where they didn't really care about God and they didn't really care about the prophecy and they didn't really care about the promise. And we know from history, one Persian leader, Cambyses, was so disgusted by the progress that he ordered the project of the Jews returning to come to a crashing halt. And when word got back to Daniel in Babylon, Daniel was overwhelmed. Sorrow. And he began to fast and he began to pray. I'm sure that Daniel was also informed of the news that things weren't going well. As a matter of fact, Jews began to marry foreign women and they began to slip into the same old sinful habits that had brought judgment and captivity to begin with. God didn't liberate them so that they could indulge themselves. God liberated them so that he could fulfill the plans and the, and, and the purposes that he always had. God was going to do, restore the Jews to the land. They were going to do, restore Jerusalem. They were going to rebuild the temple. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember, God had a plan. Messiah is on the way. Now, why is all of this important to you? Because God didn't set you free so that you could return to the past lifestyles of sinful rebellion and disobedience. God has gone to extraordinary lengths, not only to love you, not only to reveal himself to you, but to give you everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of Jesus. God has given you a Bible and promises, a plan and a purpose and a revelation of what He wants to accomplish in the world. You see, many people misunderstand the significance of freedom. Freedom in Christ doesn't mean freedom to return to past lifestyles. And so the world, apart from the Lord Jesus, becomes a type and a picture of Babylon and the captivity. These men and these women didn't belong in Babylon. They belonged in the land. And you as Christians don't belong in captivity. You don't belong in addiction and in sin. Two Many people became content in captivity. The Jews in Babylon were little concerned about the dangers that their brothers and sisters had. So even the Jews who elected to remain behind didn't understand the problems and the pain and the pressure that the brothers and sisters who were returning to the land were facing. And so sometimes, again, we think about that same way. For those Christians who do want to honor God, for those who want to obey Him, for those who want to give their hearts and lives 100%, no holding back, there remains this apathy and and indifference. But here's what you have to understand. 
Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, the prophecies that are contained in them, began to haunt Daniel. The times of the Gentiles were in full force. Who could tell when the Persian bear or the Greek leopard or the Roman beast is going to tear the Jewish people to pieces? And the people who returned to the land were vulnerable and scattered and dwelling in a difficult place. And so do you know what Daniel does? He begins to fast. And he begins to pray. And as he fasts and he prays, there doesn't seem to be an answer. It's like he's talking to the air. Have you ever been overcome with sorrow and disappointment? And you felt this incredible urge to pray, the need to pray, the necessity to pray, the value in praying. And he begins to pray in the first day and the second day and the third day and the fifth day and 21 days go by. In verse 2 it says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. He's in mourning because he is afflicted. And Daniel fasts for 21 days, praying as he lifts up the burden. Again, the captivity is supposed to be over. Opportunities are supposed to be happening. But the people are acting as if they're still in captivity. Activity, as if the visions didn't matter, as if the revelation that had been given to Daniel made no sense whatsoever. And you know, again, this becomes a type and a picture of the church. They live their lives as if there really is no Bible, as if there is no revelation, as if there is no future. That all of the things that are spoken of in the, day, in, in the Bible are just sort of like wishful thinking. How can we live our lives as if the Bible's not true? Like it meant nothing. God has given Daniel a special revelation. And in verse 3 it says, I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. You have to understand something. This is the time of celebration. But he eats no pleasant food, no meat or wine. He doesn't wash. He doesn't bathe. Why is Daniel fasting? He's not just going without food because he wants to lose some pounds. You see, fasting in the Bible is always purposeful, remember? You deny the flesh in order that you can feed the spirit. You forego certain things that you would normally do. You set them aside, but if you set them aside and you don't use that opportunity to seek God, to seek His Word, to seek His face, then fasting has no purpose. And by the way, remember, fasting is never required. Fasting isn't a spiritual crowbar intended to pry open the blessings of God. That's not the purpose of fasting. As if God is reluctant. As if, okay, if I choose to fast, then, then God will see what a holy and a spiritual guy I am, and He'll answer my prayers. No. Fasting can be as much an activity of the flesh as if the Spirit, if it's done with, with the wrong motive and, and with the wrong reason. If you're fasting in order to try to manipulate God, then save your breath and eat your food. But if you're fasting... Because your fasting is brought on by a spiritual burden, by a broken heart, by some great need that takes away the desire for food or some circumstance that causes spiritual demands to begin to overwhelm the physical demands, then by all means take advantage of it. And look what it says. And even though you may not see the significance, I want to draw something to your attention. Look what it says. Now on the 20 fourth day of the first month as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris in the Hebrew language, the Tigris is Hidekel. There's two rivers in Babylon. One the Tigris, one the Euphrates. He's on the eastern side of the empire. So what month is it? It's the first month. What month is the first month in the Hebrew calendar? Nisan. On the first day of Nisan and the second day of Nisan, what days are those? It's the celebration day. It's the feast of rejoicing. 
it's new years. Now, this becomes important because on the first day and the second day, Daniel isn't involved in the fast. It's New Year's feast. This is the time for joy and for celebration. Can I make a suggestion to you? Don't plan a fast around Christmas. That's not the time to fast. That's not the time to afflict yourself. There's a time to rejoice and there's a time for careful consideration. Now, on the 10th of Nisan, that was the day that every obedient and observant Jew had the presentation of the lamb, the sacrificial lamb. On the 14th day of Nisan, it was Passover. On the 15th to the 21st day, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Daniel is praying fasting during the time of the presentation of the Lamb, during the time of the Passover, during the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why is all of that important for you to know? Remember, this is a time when there's careful consideration of the plans and the purposes of God. Remember, what is the purpose of Passover? It's the presentation of a Lamb for sacrifice for the removal of sins. This is when he's fasting. And this is when he's praying. And in verse 5 it says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with the gold of Euphas. His body was like burl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because that is the picture that is given in the book of Revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the answers to Daniel's prayers come after 21 days, this time by divine visitation. Daniel is sitting on the banks of the river, and as he's sitting on the banks of the river, a messenger shows up. Who is this guy? Again, scholars are divided. Some believe that this is a message from Jesus. Others believe that this is an angelos. This is a messenger. This is a holy, militant warrior. Daniel alone is able to see the messenger. Now, this reminds me of a New Testament story. Do you remember in the book of Acts when Paul is on the road to Damascus? He is breathing fume and fire as he's persecuting the church. And all of a sudden, a voice in heaven appears and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He goes, who are you? I'm Jesus. And you'll remember he fell to the ground and no one else heard. But only Paul heard. His body is described as being like topaz or burl. Or there's another word in the, in the ancient language of chrysolite. It's a beautiful gem. It is transparent with a golden hue and beautiful. It's arrayed in linen. He describes a girdle. Now, this is biblical proof that it's okay for guys to wear girdles. So if you're a little bit reluctant about that, then, hey, you have biblical evidence to support the wearing of a golden girdle. The Bible says his face blazes like lightning. His eyes burn like fire. And the eyes, of course, speak of intelligence. His arms and his legs look like burnished brass. And remember, the brass becomes a a picture of metal that's heated hot. Have you ever seen metal that's been placed into a furnace and it begins to glow. That's the picture that's being described here. So burnished brass and brass in general becomes a symbol, if you will, a type, a picture of judgment in the Bible. And so here you have this being glowing and everything about him generates terror. And the reason why that even becomes an important point is in modern myth, when people talk about angels showing up, you know, you'll hear some weirdo on TV going, yeah, I was just 
praising the Lord, and I'm, I'm shaving, and all of a sudden an angel appears. And then what happened? Well, I laughed out loud. No, if an angel appears, you know what you do? You drop whatever it is you're holding, your heart stops, and you pass out in terror. That's the picture that the Bible gives when an angel actually shows up. And in verse 7 it says, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision. But listen carefully. Even though they didn't see it, look what it says. But a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Question. What are they afraid of? What is it that's so terrifying? What is it that generates such complete and awful fear? I'm going to suggest something to you. That when there truly is an angelic presence and a supernatural presence, it is overwhelming. And in verse 8, look what it says. Therefore, I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me. For my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. The picture is of a person who's white as a ghost, who completely loses all body and bowel functions, who is completely undone. The frailty, by the way, is a picture of corruption. Here's the overwhelming sense in which Daniel is, is pleading. There is a profound sense of his own sinfulness. There is a profound absence of holiness. It's like what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. There is this overwhelming sense of wickedness and sinfulness. Now, Now, I want you to think about this. And Daniel is a holy man. He's a good man. He's one of the two men in the Bible that the Bible doesn't have anything critical to say about him. And so again, there's this overwhelming sense of the presence. And then in verse 9 it says, Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. Again, the picture is one of abject poverty, Humility. He is in a sleep. And the sleep is the same word in the Hebrew language that's used to describe the sleep that falls upon Adam in, in Genesis chapter 2 when God puts him to sleep. And it says in verse 10, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. In other words, here's the bottom line. Daniel obeys the heavenly messenger. By the way, if an angel of the Lord all of a sudden appears to you and says, do something, what do you suppose is the right thing to do? Yeah, do what the angel says. It's probably a bad idea to not do what the angel says. And it's interesting to me, again, he calls the man greatly beloved. And there are several principles of a prayer that's contained in this passage, and, and we're going to visit them in just a moment. It says in verse 12, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have, become, I have come because of your words. Rather than get into a lengthy discussion of whether or not this is a, what's known as a Christophany, that means a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus or an angelic visitor, let me give you just... The short version, I believe, obviously, that this is an angelic visitor. Because, again, he responds, and he is sent, and he has a confrontation with a supernatural being, which requires the assistance of Michael. It's my view that even a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus, there would be no opposition. There is no demonic spirit There is no angelic figure that could stand against Jesus. And so, 
the angel reveals from the moment that Daniel set his heart to understand, to humble himself, look, and pray, that God heard Daniel's prayers. Now, this becomes an important principle for each and every one of us. The prayer of the believer who wants to understand what God wants, who is willing to exercise humility, is heard by God. And that becomes part of the principle. Even though you may not think God is hearing your prayers, even though you may think that you're just speaking to the walls, even though you think that you're speaking to the ceiling, God hears you from the moment, not just that you think the thought in your heart, but you express it in your lips. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the, that the believer in the Lord Jesus has immediate access to God. Remember Jesus, when he was teaching his own apostles to pray, his own disciples to pray, he said, when you pray, you pray this way. And you know the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. The New Testament reiterates over and over again that we have access, confident access to God. We have immediate, confident access. But however... As the previous verses also indicate, we may not always receive prompt answers. Well, wait a minute, Lord. I've been praying about this for one day, two days, ten days, twenty-one days. And at the end of the twenty-one days, Daniel receives a, a visitor, a heavenly visitor. I think you're well aware that there are supernatural beings who live in other dimensions who are able to visit us and communicate with us. I once did a psychic fair up in, uh, what's that little place next to Conifer? Evergreen. They had a little psychic fair up there. And I said, I would like to do, um, a, a, I would like to do a presentation on interdimensional beings. And they said, ooh, that's great. We would love to hear you do a presentation on interdimensional beings. And when I started doing the presentation and they began to understand that I was talking about angelic beings, elect and evil, angels and demons, you would think that they go, hey, wait a minute. You told us you were going to do it on interdimensional beings and now you're talking from the Bible and you're talking about angels and demons. I go, yeah, you know why? Because... The Bible is the best source of information about interdimensional beings. And guess what? Do you think all interdimensional beings come from heaven? If you do, you would be mistaken because there are some that come from somewhere else. Not all supernatural beings come from God. That's why the New Testament says... You must test the spirits, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. You must test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. And then look at verse 13. The conflict in the heart now transfers to this big picture of the conflict in the heavenlies. And in verse 13 it says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. Now, I want you to understand what's taking place. Daniel has prayed. The moment that Daniel began to pray, heaven dispatched an angel. The moment that heaven dispatched an angel, hell dispatched opposition. There was a war. There was a conflict. There was a battle. Now there's something else that you must understand in this context. Is Daniel aware of the conflict? He's not aware. During the course that he's praying, he's not aware. Sometimes when you're praying, you understand that there's a conflict. There's opposition. But you don't know exactly where it's coming from. And so in the turmoil in Daniel's heart, there is an internal war raging on the inside, but there's also a raging conflict on the outside 
between the forces of heaven and the forces of hell. The angel appears and he says that he was held up by another angel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Who is this? Is this Satan? Is this one of Satan's angels? I'm going to suggest to you that whoever it is and whatever it is, it is a demonic spirit who has some sort of special charge over that region, the region of Persia. And I'm also going to suggest something else. The Bible makes it clear that there are demonic forces controlling the world. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. Now, I'm often asked about territorial spirits. People will say, well, what do you think about territorial spirits? And I usually will remind them that there seems to be good evidence that just like there is an invisible war taking place and that God dispatches his holy angels, that there is a demonic and satanic hierarchy of angelic beings that have been set aside, placed in particular places for a particular reason. However, Daniel doesn't conduct a seminar on territorial spirits. Daniel doesn't go... He's an old man by now. Remember, he goes, I'm calling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're going to have a seminar on territorial spirits, and we're going to learn how to bind and loose the spirits. Uh, doesn't happen. Does not happen. I want you to note very carefully, the angel fights, not Daniel. You know, if no one has ever told you this, let me be the first to tell you. You're making a mistake if you want to go toe-to-toe with a demon. Not a good idea. It's a bad idea. You'll remember in the New Testament that when Michael the archangel is confronted by Satan, even Michael the archangel says, The Lord rebuke you. Certainly the Bible says, Greater is he that is in you. Than, than he that is in the world. Here is my advice, always. Whenever you're confronted with demonic, occultic, oppressive, supernatural circumstances, send Jesus. Have Jesus be your champion. Here's what the Bible says. The Father has overcome the world. The Bible says that the Son has made an open display of the devil on the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says that God has placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. Because the flesh wars against the Spirit. And the Spirit against the flesh. And just like you have an enemy, the devil. And you have an enemy, the world. And you have an enemy, the flesh. You have a champion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I also want you to note something else. Daniel prays. And it is, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. It is the prayer of Daniel that initiates the struggle. Why is that important for you? Because the moment that you bow your head, the moment you close your eyes, the, mo- the moment you incline yourself to the Lord, the moment that you begin to pray based on a supernatural and a spiritual burden in your heart, the moment that you begin to pray for your church, the moment that you begin to pray for your pastor, the moment that you begin to pray for your country, the moment that you begin to pray for its leaders, the moment that you begin to pray for your marriage, the moment you begin to pray for your ministry, the moment you begin to pray for those things that God has laid on your heart, you initiate a supernatural struggle in the invisible world. Because guess what? There is a plan of God and then there is opposition by the enemies of God. Just like God wants you to be used by Him in in the ministry that God has given you. 
in the giftedness that God has placed you in, in the circumstances that God has placed you in, in your ministry, in your marriage, in whatever it is that God has placed you, there is a supernatural struggle that will begin to take place so that your home can be torn apart, so that your ministry can be torn apart, so that your nation can be torn apart, so that your church can be torn apart. But here's the deal. The battle belongs to the Lord. Satan may assign evil agents to take careful watch over governments. And Satan doesn't do this for for fun, I believe, but to thwart the plans of God. I believe that there's a very powerful demonic presence in the Middle East. There is a demonic presence throughout the world. And remember that the demonic presence is to impede, hinder the plan of God. And then the angel mentions Michelle or Michael. And his name is important. It means Mish, which is the Hebrew word for image, and El, which is the Hebrew word for God. And so his name means who is like God or in the image and the likeness of God. And the victory is made possible by this prince, Michael. And there seems to be some indication that this is the angel who has a vital link to the people of Israel. He is stronger than both the good angel and the bad demon. Isn't that interesting? You know, when I was... Reflecting on that, you know what it made me think about? The creation of the nation state of Israel in 1948, and then the subsequent war in 1956, and then another war in 1967, and then another war in 1973, and then another war in 1981. And you know what? The war of 67, 48, 56, 67, 81 all had in common, Israel was faced with overwhelming opposition and they won each time. How do you explain that? May I suggest to you that there is a geographical and physical struggle and there is a supernatural struggle. And so when you hear the prince of Persia saying that they will destroy Israel and drive the little Satan into the sea and exterminate them and then address the great Satan. Why is it that the prince of Persia hates America so much? Just something to think about in your spare time. So he is strong. He's stronger than the good angel, and he's stronger than the bad demon. Gleason Archer writes, While God can, of course, override the united resistance of all the forces of hell, if he chooses to do so, he accords to demons certain limited powers of of obstruction and rebellion, somewhat like those that he allows in humans. In both cases, the exercise of free will and opposition to the Lord of heaven is permitted by him when he sees fit. But in Job chapter 1, verse 12, in Job chapter 2, verse 6, this is, remember, when Satan presents himself along with Benelohim, the other angelic creatures, the malignity of Satan is never allowed to go beyond the due limit set by God who will not allow the believer to be tested beyond his limit. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Martin Luther was correct when he said that even Satan is God's Satan. Even the devil is God's devil. The devil can't do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, under whatever circumstances that he wants. And guess what? Even though you might think that you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want, God will limit your choices. And He will allow you to rebel. And He will allow you to disobey. But God will never test you beyond that which you are able 
to bear, the Bible says, but with the test or with the temptation, he'll make a way of escape. And so it would appear that this demonic spirit, in fact, intercepts Daniel's prayers. And then he begins to wage a war of opposition for 21 days. I want to ask you kind of a hard question. And I don't mean this in a Pentecostal way. I don't mean, and now everybody shout to me what they think. But does that seem strange to you? Does it seem strange to you that there's an invisible war? That there are demonic beings? Wouldn't it be great? I wish the Lord would answer my prayer just for a moment, just for a moment. I wish that just for a moment, just for a split second, just for a brief moment, just for a brief moment, you would be able to see the angels all around you. I wish just for a split second you could see the powers of darkness fighting to undermine the plan of God in your life. And I wish for just a moment you could see into the heavenlies. I think Paul writes about that in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You would be making a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake if you think that we war against the liberals. You would be making a terrible, terrible mistake if you think that this is a war between conservatives and liberals, between Democrats and Republicans, between capitalists and socialists, between Catholics and Protestants. You would be making a terrible, terrible mistake because the Bible says that there's an internal war. Now, the angels are elect, and they are evil. There are angels of God, and there are angels of Satan. And since the prince of Persia withstands and opposes the angel of the Lord, I think we have to assume that this prince is not a man, but it's a spirit being. And eventually, by the way, the angelic being is able to proceed. How does the angelic being proceed? Remember, he's confronted by Michael the Archangel. And the, uh, Michael the Archangel wages war against the prince of Persia. And, and now the heavenly messenger is free to deliver the message that we're reading here tonight. Isn't that interesting? The Bible speaks of Satan as both a prince and a god, a small g. Of this world. In John chapter 14, verse 30, Jesus praying says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. Is this Jesus' way of saying, I'm not going to tip my hand? I'm not going to give it all away. Some people have read John 14, 30 and said, Well, I'm not going to pray out loud so Satan won't be able to hear me. Hey, let me point out to you. The Bible often speaks of praying out loud. In John 17, Jesus is praying out loud. When he's teaching his disciples, he's praying out loud. When Moses, remember, when the Amalekites are coming by, when they're trying to get water, Moses prays and Joshua fights. Isn't that interesting? Because there's an external war and there is an invisible war. And it has to be fought on two fronts on the spiritual front and on the physical front. In John 16, 8, it says, And when He has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they don't believe in Me, of righteousness because I go to My Father and you see Me no more, of judgment. And then He says, Because the ruler of this world is judged. Who is the ruler? It is Satan. He stands in opposition to the plan of God, to the purposes of God. There is a wicked, 
evil, malevolent spirit being described in the Bible. And he's called the adversary. He's called the wicked one. He's called Satan. This evil, self-aware being is working against God. Dr. Merle Unger writes, History since the fall of man has been an unbroken attestation to the ominous fact of evil powers in human realms, whether it be the Pharaoh of Egypt oppressing the people of God, Nebuchadnezzar leading them into captivity, Nero brutally torturing and massacring them. However, perhaps the most solemn demonstration of the, of the utter barbarity and the horrible cruelty and the wickedness of man energized by demon power has seemed reserved for the boasted civilization and enlightenment of the 20th century. At least Merle Unger writes that because more people died in the 20th century than the 19 centuries that preceded it. There's a wicked, demonic commitment to kill you. Satan's power was destroyed at the cross of Calvary, but his punishment, his isolation, his incarceration, his future torment still in the future. The Bible teaches that hell was created for the devil and his angels as a permanent place of quarantine. The Bible teaches us to submit to God, to resist the devil. There is a battle, an invisible war. And the Bible talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. And it encourages you to put your spiritual armor on. And by the way, we enforce Satan's sentence through prayer. You're defeated. The plan of God is accomplished. Jesus Christ has died for our sins. He's risen from the dead for our justification. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father where He ever lives, where He makes intercession for you. The early church fathers wrote that He will return again to judge the living and the dead and of His kingdom. There will be no end. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that even the greatest enemy that we face, death itself, will be usurped and overtaken. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. Daniel fasts. Daniel prays. A conflict is waging on the inside of his heart. And a conflict is waging on the outside. Now, I want to point something else out to you. It would appear that demonic forces can delay answers to prayer. I think that's pretty evident from the passage. There are lots of reasons why believers don't have their prayers answered. One reason is there is sometimes a demonic delay. Another reason might be what I call developmental delay. On your part. It's because you're spiritually retarded. You're praying for stuff that you have no business praying for. It's like a child at Christmas time. Can you imagine a four-year-old going, I want a Glock revolver for Christmas. No. The answer is no. The Bible says sometimes we don't receive an answer because we want something that we have no business wanting. Or we ask amiss, or to consume it, or burn it on our lust. Do you remember that person in high school that you wished to God you could, Oh God, if, if you could just give me this girl, oh, my life would be complete. Oh, all my dreams would come true. I had such a horrible crush on this girl named Patty Elser. I just loved her so much that my hands would sweat and my knees would tremble. Just like when the angel touched Daniel. That's how I felt when I saw Patty Elser. And then we had our 10-year reunion. And Patty, well, she looked more like Mama Cass Elliot than, uh, than, that, than the skinny girl that I remember. I thought, thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Have you ever done that? Or you could just, you could tell that it wasn't the right thing to pray. Sometimes God's going to answer our prayers through common means. But sometimes God is going to dispatch the supernatural to give you an answer to your prayers. Now remember what I said. Daniel is, in the beginning, unaware of the invisible war and the secret conflict. And in verse 14 it says, Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. The vision and the understandings of Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9 and then Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 12 are going to unfold right before our eyes in the not too distant weeks ahead. So far we've learned believers' prayers are immediately heard. Demonic forces can sometimes delay prayer. And now we learn that spiritual warfare or prayer can be hard work. Exhausting work. Remember, he is troubled. He is in pain. He is deeply, deeply weary. Look what it says in verse 15. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and I became speechless. He's overcome. He's completely overcome. And in verse 16 it says, And suddenly, one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I've retained no strength. It's his way of saying, I can't deal with this. I have no strength left. But there's a principle that emerges even there. In wearisome times of prayer, strength returns in extra measure. There's going to be times when you can't open your Bible and you can't open your mouth and you can't pray even the simplest prayer. The only words you might be able to form in your mouth are, Help! And in verse 17 it says, For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. Isn't that great? The angel who helped Daniel, the angel who helped him also gave him the strength to see the vision that was about to be revealed. The book of Hebrews speaks of angels as ministering spirits who are spent by, sent by God to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And you'll remember, even Jesus, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, He is overcome. And earlier in His ministry, remember, for 40 days... In the wilderness, he is tempted by Satan. And you'll remember that at the end of the temptation, what happens? An angel comes and ministers to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, an angel comes and ministers to him. I'm going to suggest to you that even though you don't see it, sometimes when you are drained and you are empty, And you sense the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God that invisible agents will once in a while touch your head and touch your lips and give you the necessary strength. God's enemies are our enemies. God's allies are our allies. And in verse 19 it says, And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And said, Let my Lord speak. For you have strengthened me. Sometimes the source of strength is supernatural. 
Sometimes it's personal, physical, relational. Sometimes it's the person sitting next to you or with you. It's the person that you call up or you email. It's the person who just simply puts their hand in your hand and says, let me pray with you just for a moment. Let's look for supernatural strength. It's the person who bows their head and then bows their heart and looks to God for strength. Now remember the five things. Believers' prayers are immediately heard by God. Number two, demonic forces can delay answers to prayer. Number three, spiritual warfare. Praying can be exhausting work. Number four, following times of wearisome battle. Strength is needed and sometimes you need an extra measure of strength. And finally, overcoming demonic forces is not a once-for-all occurrence. Look in verse 20. It says... Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. What in the world does that mean? Guess what? The prince of Persia is impeding the plan of God for the children of God. Guess what? His kingdom is going to come to a crashing halt. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians is going to collapse. But with the collapse of the Medo-Persian Empire will come the ascendancy and the rise of the Greek Empire. And they too will oppress the people of God. We've already talked about Antiochus Epiphanes and the circumstances that will take place as the children of God are placed back in the, in the land and the plans of God are constantly being attacked. The prince of Greece is also going to collapse and a future prince is going to arise, the prince of the Roman Empire, to oppress the people of God and to kill the Son of God. The angel returns and fights Was Michael holding off the demon? I think so. This would be succeeded by yet another demon. The angel assures Daniel that he will not leave Daniel until he's given him a full explanation. To this, the angel adds that only Michael could give him adequate support in the battle, in this demonic conflict. The conflict between Satan And the conflict between Jesus continues to be fought. Remember what we know from the New Testament, that the death of Jesus on the cross has ensured Satan's defeat. But it hasn't ended the war. We will have an ultimate victory. Because again, greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. And then it says in verse 21, But I will tell you, What is noted in the scripture, no one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. In other words, the only person willing to engage in the battle is the supernatural provision that has been given by God for the children of Israel. But you've been given an even greater champion than the prince. Michael, your champion is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that he is the King of angels. You know, it's been my great privilege to answer people's questions. And a lot of people have questions about the invisible realm. About the supernatural. When I was a little boy, one of my favorite heroes was a young lady named Madame Curie. Some of you have heard of her. In her day, she explored the invisible world of radiation and x-ray, and she didn't have the knowledge of the dangers of radiation poisoning, and she took no precautions, and guess what? She died from the invisible forces that she couldn't control. When I was a young man, I had an unhealthy preoccupation with the world of the occult and evil spirits, with demons and the supernatural. The truth? It almost killed me. And it 
will kill the unsuspecting. Just like the invisible forces she had no control over, evil spirits welcome investigation, evil spirits bestow powers, every age has witches and the occult, but their deceit and their deception and their danger remain the same. Here's what will happen if you mess with demons. Number one, deception. Number two, character deterioration. Number three, self-abuse. Number four, mental illness. Number five, if pushed too far, possession. Number six, in a worst case scenario, damnation. Nothing is worth that. Again, when you have a chance in your own time, look up 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 8 through 14 and verses 15 through 17. Remember, in 2 Kings chapter 6, that's the story when the prophet of God, Elisha, is surrounded by the enemies of God and the, the servant said, what will we do? And you remember Elisha's words? Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You might be wondering, it looks like my world is coming to a tragic end. I pray that God will open up your eyes and you'll be able to see something, something incredible, something supernatural. That those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Oh, but we've got a lot more to cover next time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the peek into the scriptures and some principles of prayer. That, Lord, our prayers are heard. Lord, we understand that there are those forces that would seek to hinder the plan of God. Delay the plan of God. Defeat the plan of God. But we know that it's only that. The delay. That God, you will accomplish your will on the planet Earth. On this, the American landscape. In our community. In this church. But Lord, I want you to address the plan that you have in that man's heart. In that woman's heart who believes that their prayers have been delayed, who wonder whether or not you will come to the rescue. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would communicate to them, like Daniel, how beloved they are. That from the moment in the darkness, you saw them. The first tear that was shed and the broken heart, you saw it all. There was nothing that escaped your notice. And Lord, we pray with maturity, hopefully, and humility and brokenness that we will long for what you want for us. That we would long to be men and women who are governed by God, who are submitted to the plan of God, who know the will of God, and who are energized, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to accomplish the will of God. Lord, we pray that we would no longer play games, that we wouldn't mess with darkness, and that we wouldn't harbor sin, and that we would allow you to grow us up. In Jesus' name, Let's see.